2: Right now, on Last Call, an explosive hearing on the Hill. You have
3: blood on your hands. You have a product that's killing people.
2: Tech CEOs grilled over threats to child safety. will get reaction from Meta whistleblower Francis Hogan. Plus, Qualcomm earnings are out and shares are moving. We're going to be joined exclusively by the CEO. On the ropes, a savior in last year's bank crisis nose diving. Is it another major warning for other banks? Preparing to wreak havoc the FBI uncovering covering Chinese hackers targeting critical U.S. infrastructure. Plus, where are the super rich investing now? We're going to get our hands on exclusive data that you are going to want to see, and you'll only see it here. All that and more over the hour, so belly up or buckle up, because last call is up right now. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Good to be back with you. we got all that and more coming up in our hour. But first up on last call, the words that sent stocks tumbling.
4: Based on the meeting today, I would tell you that I don't think it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting to identify March as the time to do that. But that's that's to be seen. Um, So I wouldn't call, uh, uh, you know, when you say when you ask me about in the near term, I'm hearing that
2: as March. I would say uh, I don't think that's probably not the most likely case or
4: what we would call the base case.
2: That was, of course, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell after the central bank kept borrowing costs where they were. But Powell did say earlier in the news conference that rate cuts would likely come at some point this year, although you just heard him say it's probably not March. So that was not good enough for investors. The market wants rate cuts, and it wants them now. The Dow dropped 300 points after briefly hitting a new all-time high earlier in the session. The S&P 500 dodging its worst day in more than four months. But the biggest decliner, of course, the NASDAQ. It is the most levered to interest rates. The NASDAQ dropping more than 2% its worst performance in three months. So a big question now is weighing on Wall Street. Exactly when will the Fed begin cutting rates? And where does your money go next? Let's ask the first and only Bond King, who literally invented modern bond trading, legendary investor and PIMCO co-founder, Bill Gross, who is now free to do what he wants. He can buy stocks, he can arbitrage, he can do whatever, and we love it, Bill. Good to have you back on. You spent decades parsing the words and the language changes from Fed chairs because they made a massive, they struck this word and they added that word, et cetera. What did you hear from Jay Powell today?
5: Well, you hit it, Brian, right at the start of the program. It's all about confidence. You know, he suggested or he affirmed that the committee had great confidence that uh, their target of 2% inflation would be met. He just suggested that he needed continuing confidence, and that's basically your question. How long will they require confidence um, in order to start interest rate uh, Declines, and uh, you know he suggested, as you mentioned, uh, perhaps three cuts during the year, but not in March, and uh, perhaps a little bit later.
2: Yeah, the March cuts—the odds came down. You know, people track this stuff. It's like it's like betting on these on the Super Bowl. It's like, what are the odds of a March cut? Well, they fell dramatically today because Powell basically said we're not cutting rates in March. But would you expect that we will get two or three rate cuts this year? And if and if so, Bill would you agree with that would that be the move that bill gross would make
5: yeah I, I i think so i i mean the the inflation protected uh yield is is close to its high in terms of being a restrictive relative to uh the forward market the market expects fed funds to come down to three and three quarters by the end of the year and that perhaps would suggest three fifty basis point cuts beginning in May or June. And so I I think the market has that right. Uh, But, uh, you know, the timing of it, I think, is important.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, the the market is hanging on every word about the Fed. And and I guess from my perspective, Bill, doing this long enough, okay, the fact that if we get a change in utterance about whether or not we're going to make a rate cut in March versus May and stocks fall 2 percent on the NASDAQ, is is not necessarily the sign of the healthiest market, and I think you might agree because I'm going to quote. And you forgive me from uh, from reading here, Bill. I'm going to quote Bill Gross back to Bill Gross. Today's finance-based global economies are moving in the wrong direction. Government and private market debt levels are near all-time highs relative to the GDP, not just here but most of Euroland and whatever. If interest rates cannot be lowered below nominal GDP growth and fiscal deficits not be controlled, it'll only get basically harder and worse from here. What does that mean?
5: Well, it, it means that, uh, you know, based upon today's uh, expected deficit for the fiscal year of, you know, perhaps one and a half trillion dollars, that If that's 5% of GDP. To, to me, that means that uh, we need close to 5% GDP deficits in order to keep the economy going, to keep it at a 5% nominal rate, which would be 2% inflation. And perhaps 3% real growth. Most countries are in the same situation, Brian. They have uh, fiscal deficits of about 5%, and I mm-hmm. think that's what we're looking at for as long as the, uh, you know, the eye can see. Yeah. Uh, fiscal deficits based upon demographics, based upon Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on and on.
2: I was at a conference out in Arizona the last couple of days, gave a talk, took a lot of questions, met a lot of great people, and we're gonna have somebody on from it later on in the hour. That said, I think, Bill, I don't know about you, people maybe not wanna bother you on the golf course, but for me, when I'm out, the biggest question I get now is why doesn't $34 trillion in debt seem to matter? And I utter the three painfulest words in TV news anchor history, I don't know. And I don't know. I have no idea why 34000000000000 trillion doesn't seem to matter. Is it because other countries are just as or even more indebted?
5: Well, in part. I mean, China has a, a deficit relative to GDP of about 280% as opposed to our uh, 110 or so. And so it does matter. But I think the market expects, you know, any deficit to basically be funded by the uh, by the Federal Reserve. And um, if that's the case, down the road, if they can fund a 5% GDP deficit if they have to, and they do, um, then inflation is the result. Uh, That's down the road, however, and at the moment, they're looking at Fed cuts as opposed to Fed hikes, but Hmm. two to five to 10 years down the road with these types of deficits and the compounding type of effect of a trillion and a half dollar uh, deficit each year, then. You know, that's a significant problem. It will come, much like global warming.
2: Yeah. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, Bill, is that it may not matter now, but it will ultimately matter. And basically, the Federal Reserve, we can, we can dither over when they're going to cut. I think I heard you just say they have to cut because we cannot finance that kind of debt and deficit with rates where they are right now. So it's not a question of when or, or if or whatever. It's, it, it's going to happen.
5: Well, that's part of the problem, yes, with, uh, you know, six-month and one-year Treasury bills at close to 5%. Uh, that's a tremendous disparity relative to what we witnessed over the past five years or the prior five years. And so that compounding of short-term debt in addition to the fives, tens, and thirties, then, um, you know, it's a significant problem yeah. going forward. It's just, you know, another day deeper and deeper in debt.
2: Speaking of significant problems, by the way, you you made a great bet a couple of months ago on regional banks the last time you were here. You bought Truist, Citizens, Key Corp, or First Horizon, or at least mention those as names that you were thinking about or had bought. And by the way, since you made that call November 2nd of last year, they're up 30, 41, 43, and 32 percent. So if you bought them, congratulations. Uh, But today, Bill, you saw. The ETF drop and you saw New York Community Bank Corp fall 35% because they cut their dividend. How do we how do we read a bank falling one-third on a dividend cut and a slight earnings miss?
5: Well, yes, I, I mean they cut the dividend by two-thirds, so that's part of the reason why it went down by one-third. But um you know, no one really knows what's behind this in terms of why they cut the dividends so significantly. But now investors in uh, these regional banks are expecting perhaps, you know, the same type of effect uh, going forward. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think it's time for an investor in regional banks to s- sit down, take it easy, uh, not buy anymore, collect the 5 to 6% dividends that exist, and... Um, and look forward to the next six to 12 months in six to 12 months
2: so you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them there's i think there's a song with that <laughs> lyric bill if i'm right so you're holding but you're not folding
5: yes i'm holding not folding you bet and not adding no i'm not adding i'm looking uh, you know there, there are lots of candidates but um uh, you know, uh, for instance, City and Bank of America, they're not regionals, and that's why they didn't go down very much today. So they might be better choices for those looking at banks in the near term.
2: Always like it. Bill Gross on the Fed and investing in regional banks. And uh, you made some bank uh, and regional banks over the last 90 days, Bill, but I would expect nothing less. Bill Gross, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. All right. Well, let's take a look at what happened to your money today And in- See what happened with the markets. We just told you, basically, they all fell across the board. But if you're just joining us, we will throw them back up there. Dow down. NASDAQ fell about 2%. For the futures, they're actually a little bit in the green. So maybe day today was like a one-day thing. We'll see what happens tomorrow. All right. Here's what's going to happen after the commercial break. Top tech CEOs squaring off with lawmakers over online child safety. Was anything accomplished? We're going to hear from Meta whistleblower Francis Haugen ahead. Plus, Qualcomm shares whips on back and forth after the latest results. Christina Partzinevelis flew all the way across the country to San Diego, founded in 1909 by the Germans, and joins us now from Qualcomm's HQ
0: which was founded in 1985, my birthday. And yes, we will go over the topsy-turvy movement of the stock and Qualcomm's latest thoughts on the smartphone market and its new agreements with both Apple and Samsung. All of those details coming up after the break.
6: This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the
2: stories and headlines you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning and tonight... We're talking chips. No, not the epic 80s TV show with John and Ponch and the lovable cast of California Highway Patrol, but the semiconductor kind of chips. Because it's a biggie tonight. Qualcomm posting results and an impressive revenue beat driven by strong smartphone sales. Shares initially rose on the report, but have come back down just a bit since. And that leads us to this. Christina Evelis joining us now from Qualcomm's World Headquarters In San Diego, for an exclusive with the CEO, Cristiano Amon. Christina, take it away.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Brian. And you set it up really nicely. Congratulations on the quarter. It seems like the premium market really helped your margins with this quarter. Um, Which leads me to my first question and announcement you made about Apple. In On your earnings call, you mentioned that Apple chose to extend its agreement with you. I, I like the wording of that. You know, it's Apple's choice, uh, just like it was Apple's choice to extend its chip agreement with you through 2026. So what does that say about Apple and its capabilities of, you know, making their own mobile smartphone chips?
7: Look, uh, t- two things. I think they will probably a natural, I think, extension that will happen. If you remember, a uh, couple I think last quarter we talked about extending The agreement with uh, Apple for chips, I think, in 2026. And then Apple, also independent of the chip agreement, had the license agreement for. Uh, Qualcomm standard essential patents and they had an option to extend and they extended until March so that means they they have to do
0: business with you right they can't Uh, do it on their own
7: we're very happy with the relationship with Apple right now and we will continue to be supplying modems to them and we're happy that they see the value of our intellectual property as well
0: you also made an announcement about Samsung so similar situation Uh, you Samsung you provide licensing to Samsung but now you've announced a multi-year agreement for chips can you just explain that, please? And what does multi-year yes, mean? Yes,
7: I think we we have uh, renewed the Samsung license agreement. I think uh, a while back, and I think what we did right now this quarter, we extended our chipset uh, supply agreement. Multi agreement means it's a number of years. <laughs> I think we're not disclosing the duration. No, buddy. you're not. I
0: tried to ask your CFO, yeah, and not but, you, but it's It has a
7: number of years in that agreement. I think what's exciting about it is it's really showing the value of Snapdragon 8, the stability of relationship with Samsung. The first year of this agreement, it was 2024, with the launch that just happened of Galaxy S24. We have majority share of the flagship. That's a very good proxy how the other years are going to unfold. And I think the way to look. At this. If you step back and you think about Qualcomm mobile business, uh, especially the smartphone business, a lot of stability with Apple, both on the license and the, the chip supply and the contract, stability with Samsung, and we're growing in China. So we're actually very happy about where we are and uh, and the market is kind of re- return to normality ah,
0: perfect segue to my next question which is going to focus on china because there's been mixed reviews mixed commentary coming from china that the handset market might be you know slowing down uh, that they're stockpiling chips in other categories like auto that there's just inventory levels that have been higher they're double ordering so given your business with china is expanding and i know i'm keeping it as a general question what are you seeing from your customers in China? All
7: right. So there's a lot in that in that I question. I know. There's a lot oh, I'm going to unpack it. That's good. I'm going to unpack starting with Hanson, and then we'll talk about auto. Hanson's. I think what's important is 2023, if you remember, we had a big correction um, of the Hanson market. Mm-hmm. But we did say uh, in the last, not this earnings call, the last earnings call, that the inventory correction on the Android ecosystem was Behind us, and I think what you started to see this quarter is the market going back to normality. The thing that is exciting is uh, Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 uh, has been really well accepted by other Chinese customers with a lot of flagship launches. And what we show in the results this quarter, it's actually a lot of volume from Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 from customers like Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, Honor, and more. Uh, you know, and it, the interesting thing is there's a lot of noise about Huawei coming yeah. back to the phone business. But what Huawei really did increase the TAM, increase the size of the market because Huawei users, um, upgraded to a Huawei phone, but demand is still strong for our customers. We cannot ship hn 3 to But that's because you're to...
0: still providing the chips for Huawei? because why No, that... we're not. Right.
7: We so cannot so... ship hn 3 to Huawei. They have their own chip for 5G. So doesn't that hurt but your market most, share? But most of our demand that you see in the quarter right now are other Chinese customers buying this chip. And I actually show our customers are being able to hold their share, and they see a lot of excitement in the premium tier in China right now.
0: Okay, so just so, so I, I know we have to wrap now, but that's good that you clarified it because it seems like a lot of people believe that you're still working with Huawei, but you're saying no, you're pivoting, and the rest of the market is interested in your product instead. Look,
7: we, we talk about it in the past. Huawei is move on to 5G. Uh, we don't have a 5G license, we can ship it to them. But the exciting thing is our customers still holding to their position in China and a lot of excitement around H entry.
0: And your stock is coming back. Uh, I know there was a little bit of uh, ups and downs this afternoon, but thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. No, thank
7: you. Thank you for being in San Diego.
0: (laughs) Brian, back over to you.
2: Christina and Cristiano. Thank you. All right, on deck. Top tech CEOs raked over the coals by lawmakers. Will anything meaningful come from an explosive? Child safety hearing met whistleblower. Francis Haugen will join us. Plus, the FBI uncovering a shocking Chinese hacking operation. Why it's raising big questions around the safety of critical infrastructure like your water. That's coming up.
6: This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is.
2: All right, welcome back. Here's a massive and pretty scary story. The FBI saying it disrupted a major Chinese hacking operation, one that could put critical infrastructure like your drinking water at risk. Eamon Javers joining us now with more. Eamon, just just how big was the threat from this operation?
1: Well, Brian, the FBI said today that it took down a botnet without even telling the owners of the routers in question due to the urgency of the threat to U.S. infrastructure. And the Bureau says it's now going to begin notifying people who owned these computer software routers where agents found and deleted the Chinese malware after the fact. The entity behind the attack, they said, is nicknamed Volt Typhoon, and it's a tool of Chinese intelligence. And at a congressional hearing today, FBI Director Chris Wray laid out the sectors that are most at risk from this attack.
4: The Volt Typhoon malware enabled China to hide, among other things, pre operational reconnaissance and network exploitation against critical infrastructure like our communications, energy, transportation, and water sectors.
1: The FBI director also said that the Chinese threat to the American economy is, quote, the defining threat of our generation. I do
4: not want those watching today to think we can't protect ourselves. But I do want the American people to know that we cannot afford to sleep on this danger. As a government and a society, we've got to remain vigilant and actively defend against the threat that Beijing poses. Otherwise, China has shown it will make us pay.
1: Brian, there's still a lot that we don't know about what happened here. But the folks at Mandiant Google uh, told me today that the FBI forced hackers off these vulnerable home office routers because the Chinese were using them for command and control traffic. In essence, these home offices were really jumping off points for the Chinese government to target U.S. infrastructure. Back over to you. Just a massive, massive story. Glad you're on it, Eamon. I'm sure there's more to come. Thank you
2: very much. All right, also in D.C. today, a tense day for tech. The CEOs of top social media platforms like Meta, X, Snapchat, and TikTok all testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee on whether their platforms harm children. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle jumped in.
8: Mr. Zuckerberg,
9: you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a
3: product. That's killing people.
0: There's been so much talk at these hearings and popcorn throwing and the like. And I just want to get this stuff done. I'm so tired of this. It's been 28 years, what, since the Internet. We haven't passed any of these bills. It's time to actually pass them. And the reason they haven't passed is because of the power of your companies. Now, this
2: was Mark Zuckerberg's eighth time, eighth time, testifying before Congress. But has anything actually ever changed from all the hearings and all the criticism and all the words? Joining us now is former Meta employee and whistleblower, Francis Haugen, who is now an advocate for accountability and transparency in social media. Francis, I'm sure you saw it. One of the the hearing's big moments, maybe the biggest moment, came from Zuckerberg himself when he was asked to apologize to family members in the audience Mm -hmm. who say their children suffered or died due to content on Meta. I want you to listen and then respond. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good
1: people?
10: I, I... and first, so, everything we've all been
1: terrible no one should actually go through the things that your families have, have suffered.
2: And this is why we invest so much and are going to continue doing industry leading efforts to uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. Francis, what do you think? Is that apology genuine or just kind of corporate speak?
9: One of the interesting exchanges that took place either immediately before or after that was one of the senators, I believe it was Senator Butler of California, said she asked Zuckerberg the night before, have you ever actually talked to a victim, a family that lost a child due to your product? And he said no. Part of what was so powerful about that apology was for the first time, a hearing was attended by not just one or two survivor families, but by tens, if not a hundred. It was a full room, the energy was electric. And so that, that apology, I think, is a, is, a, is a turning point because it's the first time he's actually had to visibly face the consequences of his choices.
2: I will give Mark Zuckerberg credit. He stood up and he turned around he and he said it. And a lot of tech CEOs, a lot of CEOs would duck the hearings all together. If yeah. they show up, they'd hide behind their lawyers. They would just go mealy mouse. So I will give him credit on that. But you heard the intro. This mm. is the eighth time. And, and we're not yeah. picking on Zuckerberg. He's just the biggest. It's the eighth time. He's testified. What has changed? I I can't think of one thing. Mm.
9: What was so interesting about this hearing compared to, say, the one that I testified in uh, about two and a half years ago, or even the one from this fall where Arturo Behar, the former director of security at, at Facebook, testified, was that now we have a huge amount of documents that have been released as part of the attorney's general lawsuits. So for context, just this morning, Uh, Congress released 90 pages of emails between Mark Zuckerberg and other members of his team where he actively hindered the ability of other people in his organization to protect children. You know, executives came to him and said, we are not aligned with what we're saying publicly. We need a very small investment. Uh, Senator Blumenthal estimated at just $9 million for a company that has $34 billion of profit. Um, And yet, Mark had a confront today That he said those things, he did those actions, and now everyone knows. And that's a huge difference compared to what happened in the past.
2: Well, let's also not forget that they were very close to creating Instagram for kids. Kids. I mean, they ultimately decided to ban it or maybe they'll bring it back. They didn't go forward. They were Mm -hmm. really close to doing Instagram for kids, Mm Francis,
10: Directly targeting
2: targeting eight and nine-year-olds as a product.
9: So one of the interesting things that happened at today's hearing was a group of ch- of, of, of young adults, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, stood up with T-shirts that said, I am worth more than $270. And that's a reference to uh, when Antigone Davis, who's one of the senior safety leaders at Meta, appeared before the Senate in the fall of 2021. She said, we don't think of, pe- of children as having uh, a lifetime value, like a numerical number, Um, And, again, this is one of these things that came out as a result of the attorney's general lawsuits, which have now number 44 states and and the District of Columbia charging that Facebook treated kids, in the words of Amy Klobuchar today, treated our kids as products and not as people.
2: Yeah, you know, and here's the thing about Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, was always the wonderkin, but he's almost 40 years old. He has three kids. I think his oldest kid is is eight, seven or eight years Mm -hmm. old. I would love to hear somebody ask Mark in a couple of years, do you let your own children use some of your products? Mm.
9: It's going to be interesting. Someone asked the TikTok CEO that today. They said, "You know, do you let your kids use TikTok for kids?" And he said, "Well, if they were in the United States, I would, um, because in Singapore, where his children live, you know, TikTok for kids isn't legal. You know, it's not allowed access to kids. So I think I think you're right. It's one of these things where we're having to work through questions around." What is appropriate for children online? Because they're real, realizing the consequences are a lot better than we used to think.
2: Yeah, it isn't. You, you mentioned that about TikTok owned by a Chinese company called Bite dance And I don't believe TikTok, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, is available in China. To your point, it's not legal for children in Singapore to use it. But for some reason, it is just fine for kids here, but it's not fine for kids or anybody in the country in which it is based. And that, that's something we probably need to think about. Francis Haugen, thank you, always.
9: My pleasure. Happy right. to be here.
2: Thank you. All right, up next content you will not get anywhere else. And it's where the rich are putting their money right now. And it's probably not where you think. That's up next. All right, welcome back. Have you ever wanted a glimpse? into how some of America's most successful and wealthy entrepreneurs are investing their own money. Well, unless you know a bunch of them, you probably can't. Until now, because the last two days, I was honored to attend the annual gathering of Tiger 21, an exclusive members-only membership group, an organization full of wealth creators, entrepreneurs, and wealth preservers. It was a great event, as always, and fun to speak at. And now the group has their own proprietary survey on how their members are investing their own money. And it is fascinating. Joining us now with the data is Tiger 21 founder, Michael Sonnenfeld. Michael, I feel feel like I just saw you like (laughs) yesterday in person. Michael, thanks for coming on the program. You really kind of blew my mind with this because, you know, we're CNBC. We we love creating wealth and preserving it. We love the stock market. But more and more of your members are finding wealth or better opportunities outside the stock market.
10: You know, you're right, Brian. It's a really incredible shift over the last 15 years of how entrepreneurs, when they sell their business, how do they preserve their wealth and grow it? And the biggest story is that people are creating wealth earlier on. So instead of being at 60 and having sold your business after 30 years, today with technology, you can do it at 45. And the big difference is. At 60, you weren't going for another 30-year cycle. But at 45, you're going to start all over again. So what it adds up to is that private equity has become king for the first time in 23 years, topping real estate. Real estate had been king. Now it's only uh, in the mid-20%, and private equity tops it at 28%. It's a remarkable thing. And the disappearing public equity down to 19%. The three together still are a long bias. It's a long bet, but the bet is all on private assets with public assets down to just
2: 20%. It is amazing having been now for a number of years to your fantastic events and gotten gotten to know personally, a lot of your fantastic members. And I know I'm getting older, Michael, every year we all get a little bit older, but I swear your members are getting younger and younger.
10: You know, uh, Brian, uh, 20 years ago, when we started measuring the average age of our members, it was about 59. That's what the average age we believe of some of the most successful entrepreneurs were when they were able to liquidate. Today, it's down to the low 50s. And what's amazing is, even though it's the low 50s, because so many of our members have stayed, the newer members, there's lots of people in their 30s and 40s that have created significant wealth. You know, our members. Have created wealth of between twenty million and a billion dollars. It's over hundred million dollars on average. We have thirteen hundred members around the globe in one hundred and twelve groups now in seven countries, and they meet every month. But it's younger and younger. That's that's what the frictionless economy is all about. It's AI. It's digital. And it's the internet. It's it's a new world.
2: Yeah, dive into that a little bit more, Michael. Because you know, and your, your members are private. I, I met a really nice guy uh, who grew up poor, a very private guy, kind of an introvert. grew up grew up poor, built some engineering type company, sold it, and and made a fortune. And now he's kind of trying to figure out what he's going to do on Act Two. He's under fifty years old. It, what do you mean by frictionless economy? How is it possible that people are able to build and sell companies for tens or hundreds of millions? in their thirties or or early forties.
10: You know, Brian, when I went to business school at the Sloan School at MIT and took a marketing course 40 years ago, the marketing course said, can you design a product for a million people? It was unheard of. But today, if you're at a marketing school, it's can you design a product for a billion people? So when you have the internet that runs around the globe and the digital processes that are available, a good idea can scale. That's that's why you have seven companies in the uh, Nasdaq that dominate. You know the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebooks, etc. Amazon. These are companies that uh, have a first mover advantage. And even when they're not the first mover, Google wasn't the first mover. They dominated. And when you dominated, it, it's a winner take all strategy. So, younger, faster, bigger is the theme of uh, recent years yeah. of what technology has done.
2: Speaking of faster, by the way, in two ways. Okay, so first off, it was a great guest lineup. Kathy Wood, I was walking in shorts and a flip, flip-flops, and she had just, I guess, finished her talk. I was a little bit embarrassed. Kathy, if you're watching, I'm sorry, that was in a T-shirt. Uh, there's part of my talk, which is great. You had Danica mm. Patrick. You had Lindsey Vaughn, which, I, of course, I'm a huge fan and in awe of both of them. Why bring in those types? What what can the athlete superstar, the achiever on these levels, sort of teach a group of already extremely accomplished people?
10: Well, Lindsay and Danica, you know, are two of the most important sports figures. They happen to women and they dominate women's sports. But they're two of the most important sports figures in the world. And when you have a a multiple-time Olympic medalist uh, like Lindsay Vaughn, and uh, you see what it took to be on top and to stay on top and the kind of concentration. Uh, What our audience was learning is not only what it takes to stay on top, but really Mm -hmm. big lessons on as parents, what do you do to help your kids get on top? And uh, paving the way for kids to be successful, removing the obstacles was a real lesson and supporting them was a real lesson we learned from these two amazing women.
2: An amazing event. And by the way, if anybody out there is listening or watching who has lived or currently lives in Jersey City, the, one of the reasons it's come up is because of this guy right here, Michael Sonnefelt, his partner, took an old rundown area and built the modern-day Jersey City. Uh, Michael Sonnefelt was honored to be there. Hope to see you again, and thanks for coming on Last Call on CNBC. Thanks, Brian. All right, take care. All right, coming up, are we on the verge of another regional bank crisis? What happened today that you're going to want to hear? And that is next.
5: For instance, City and Bank of America, they're not regionals, and that's why they didn't go down very much today. So they might be better choices for those looking at banks in the near term.
2: That was the original bond king. Bill Gross earlier this hour as comments come as regional bank stocks got crushed today. One big reason: a multi-billion dollar bank, New York community bank corp. Investors lost more than one-third of their investment today. Stock fell 37.5% after New York Community Bank posted a surprise loss and slashed its dividend. It also showed problems with weakening credit quality in things like commercial real estate loans. Just a short time ago, Moody's put the bank on review for a possible credit rating downgrade. That sent other regional banks like Valley National, Bank United, Western Alliance, and more into a tailspin as well. Meantime, the big got bigger. J.P. Morgan hit an all-time high before finding a little bit of a sell-off toward the end. Goldman Sachs. Citigroup Wells Fargo also touching their highest levels in nearly two years. They closed a little lower, but they were up earlier in the session. So what exactly is going on here? Let's talk about it with the editor of Herb Greenberg on the street on Substack. Herb Greenberg himself, also a CNBC contributor. Is this a New York Community Bank Corp specific problem or is this Silicon Valley and Silvergate Capital
8: round two? No, this is this is an NYCB as the bank is known. This is their issue; it's specific to them. If you take a look at this, um, you know my view, my interpretation is the bank got really too full of itself. It went on the spine spree. It bought this Flagstar Bank, and then it bought assets then of a really troubled bank, Signature Bank. In my estimation, thought it could wiggle out of it. Then too smart by half, because of course these banks are run by human beings. And then reality hit, and that's what happened now, because they said basically they needed to get to this, you know, they hit this $100 billion capital requirement benchmark. They crossed the Rubicon. They actually said this in their press release earlier than they anticipated. And that, I think, is their issue. And if you go back even a quarter, a quarter ago in their last conference call, when they are asked whether they were, were ready, they said we, they didn't say it, but they implied We've got it, Brian. They said, we're mm. putting the infrastructure in place. And so you have to wonder what's really going on here. I think this is specific. Yeah, to I them. think
2: I know what's going on here. I watched it on the interweb and it was this guy at a whiteboard and he had a sharpie and he went up and we did this and, and I'll, I'll clean it up for TV. I think he said something like he, they messed around and they found out.
8: They messed around and they found out. Yes. What happens is when you tend to up when, when, it, when one bank buys a troubled bank, It ends up having, there's usually indigestion, whether it's a bank or a business or a company. You buy something, management always thinks it's smarter than the other guys. Sometimes they get through it. Many times they don't. And therein lies the issue. And that's what these guys have specific to them. 37.5%
2: decline on a dividend cut and a miss and some credit quality. That's a lot of cut. Uh, They messed around and they found out. Herb Greenberg, thank you. They did. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Brian. All right. Coming up, let the bidding begin. Media mogul Byron Allen making a play for Paramount, but the intrigue and drama may just be getting started. Talk about that. Plus, the boom of pickleball. All right, another bidder potentially in the mix for Paramount. Media mogul Byron Allen has made a $14.3 billion offer to buy the company with Allen Media Group. It's $30 billion if you include Paramount's sizable debt load. Shares of Paramount jumped on the news of the bid, up 6.65%. Paramount, if you're counting at home, now is a host of potential suitors like Larry Ellison's son, David Ellison, Skydance Media, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav, who met with Paramount CEO Bob Backish about a possible merger. Can Byron Allen seal the deal? What happens to Paramount if he does? Let's bring in David Levy on this and more. He's the former president of Turner Networks, which includes Turner Sports, TNT, and TBS among others, and the co-CEO and founder of Horizon Sports and Experiences Plus, the co-producer of the Pickleball Slam yes, tournament pickleball which is why you're here we'll talk about it yes. but because of your illustrious career as a media exec, I, I would be remiss. Humbled. Should Humbled. I not ask you about this? <laughs> who ends up with Paramount?
3: Uh, who knows who ends up with Paramount
2: Does somebody have to end so, Paramount House to end up with somebody
3: they, Listen, they, they have been known as an acquisition target for quite some time. They have incredible assets right and they have great brands. somebody will end up with Paramount. It's a question of the balance sheet and what they're going to do with it. Is it worth thirty billion dollars? It's worth whatever everybody pay for it. Yeah, that's
2: and you got really- you got Alan out there, Zaslav. Either way, I think you would agree that that we need to streamline. The industry needs to be fixed. Streaming itself, streamline the streaming. <laughs> streamline we're the gonna streaming. Have, we're going to have to. You can, by the way, trademark that. We're going to have to go back to the cable bundle. I think to make any money
3: here. What's old is new again, right? It's all it's all the same thing. The streamers are definitely a big part of what's happening with legacy media right now. It really is. It truly is.
2: And sports, I think, are the glue that's holding everything together. Of course, football is the glue. But what's interesting is that millions of people are not only playing pickleball, but I know and all names shall remain nameless are watching pickleball on television, watching. It's a huge sport. You've got the pickleball slam. I've played it. It's fun. I'm terrible. But what,
3: what is the
2: allure of pickleball? Why is it so gigantic
3: all of a sudden? Well, I'll talk about the slam first and tell you how it mixes into what's making it so popular. You know, there's 40 million people playing pickleball. There's 40? Right 40. 40 I said millions. millions. I shortchanged sure it. 40 million people playing pickleball. And so that was the idea to take that incredible um, asset of all those people and put the best names in racket sports, McEnroe, Sharapova, playing against Steffi Graf and Agassi and make them play against a million for a million-dollar purse yep. live on ESPN. You put those two assets together, greatest names in racket, the biggest growing sport in America the last three years, you're going to have a success.
2: In fact, we had Johnny Mac on the show a couple months ago because he was rolling out a, a quieter paddle. That's the right. Only, right. The, 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 the owl. Only big I think it's com- called the owl. The owl. There yeah, you, you know, it eats Tootsie Pops and it also is quiet, apparently, because the only complaint about pickleball is the noise. But the pros don't care, yeah. right? you got a lot of, like, re- these are not – you've got recently retired pro tennis players like Jack Sock and others playing in these tournaments. Sock's I don't know how Sock
3: so- fits on a court, by the Sock's way. Sock's going to be down at this tournament as well on the McEnroe team. What was he, Blake?
2: 6'10"? How does he <laughs> fit?
3: What's interesting is not only are uh, people playing it, but advertisers are supporting it. We have, we have um, Franklin fin- Financial – excuse me, Bright House Financial mm-hmm. – we have uh, State Farm. We have uh, um, uh, E-Trade. All are now supporting and sponsoring the Pickleball Slam. So it's not just people participating, but it's advertisers, and there's people watching. It was a rating success as well, Slam 1, and that's why we're going to be in primetime on Slam 2. And
2: there's all these athletes. I think there's a couple names up here on this wall that people may know that have invested in Pickleball. Yep. LeBron James. Tom Brady, who apparently is aging backwards, Kevin Durant, (laughs) Patrick Mahomes, and many, many more have invested. Can you make money off pickleball?
3: You know, that's a great question because they seriously think you can. That's a great question. Um, You know, at some point, you know, we'll all find out. Nobody knows right now. Okay, Uh, people are investing in franchises. Uh, The two pickleball professional leagues have now merged. Mm -hmm. Um, They're now starting to pay the athletes. Uh, Price uh, purses are going up. It's all going to be a question of whether uh, advertisers will continue to support it. Will people pay for the content and will people go to the event for ticketing? And that's still building as we speak. But from our participation, it's 40 million people playing. So. I got to believe at some point someone's going to make money. from it, it doesn't. It's not usurping tennis, is it? It's sort yeah. of riding alongside I, it. I actually think they're they're They can survive both uh, independently, meaning I don't think tennis players are going to disappear. And I don't think pickleball players are going to disappear either. I think they're going to live simultaneously together.
2: Yeah, it truly is
3: remarkable. When is this event? It is, is, is this can Sunday. Come, how do they watch? Can people just come down? No. And, no. Yeah. Well, you can buy a ticket. Um, uh, it's at the Hard Rock Casino, our partner in Hollywood, Florida. In Hollywood, Florida, or oh, you can watch it. There. Or you can watch it on ESPN live, eight thirty Sunday night. 8.30 su- this, this Sunday night. We- on ESPN? On ESPN. Not ESPN 6. Not ESPN Ocho. No. Not, not the Ocho. No, 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 no. no live, live on, on ESPN, the, wow. the main channel. I yep. wanted to have a deco, a graphic that said, what's the
2: deal with pickleball? But then they thought that that was too much of a dad <laughs> joke. So it is. My son's back there. Hi, Finny. All right. Uh, thank you. David Levy, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Schlepping appreciate all this way it. Love into the Jersey. show. No, Love thanks. the show. Thank you very much. You're the one. <laughs> we appreciate it. All right, folks, you know what happened 34 years ago today? McDonald's opened its doors in Russia for the first time, and it was a big, big deal. Remember that scene? If you're of a certain age, that's an iconic moment, okay? Now, McDonald's was a massive hit in Moscow, and 30,000 people were served on the first day, a McDonald's record for an opening day, of course. I mean, for us, you open a McDonald's, It's not a big deal. There's another McDonald's in the corner. Who cares? For many Russians in the Soviet Union, McDonald's represented their first exposure, not only to just American culture and food, but really to capitalism, right? A communist nation with a free market, probably less free in the Soviet Union, but at the time a big deal. McDonald's would go to open about 850 locations across Russia. Now, the Big Mac... It is no more in Moscow. McDonald's pulled out of Russia two years ago following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The locations have been rebranded under a new name, Tasty. And that's it. Maybe they could call it the McDowell's and they could have the big Mick. I, it's just, just just an idea. It's a movie reference, too, if you got that. Thanks for watching, folks. We'll see you tomorrow night on Last Call. Take care.